Amen. Why don't you go ahead and take a seat, and I will whisper for a moment. The voice of God. No, just kidding. Uh, we are in Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. If you have Galatians, well, I don't know if you have Galatians. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to chapter 4. Uh, it will be found on page 974, I believe, of your house Bibles, and it's about halfway through your New Testament. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and we'll get one of those to you. Got a few hands raised. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21, will be in verses 21 through 31 today. And I almost just fell off the back of the stage. Good start. Let me pray for our time in the Word. Father, as we dig into your Word, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would do a great work in us right now. Transform us, convict us, lead us towards Christ, and make us fall in love with our Heavenly Father in ways we didn't know we were able to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been studying this book of Galatians in the New Testament. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been going verse by verse through this entire book in the New Testament that's called Galatians. And I got to be honest with you, uh, this has been a really sweet journey for me. Um, you know, Kenson will often say it, and I would affirm what he says, that oftentimes when we get up here to open up God's Word and when we preach and we're delivering these insights and messages that the Lord's given us through studying, really, oftentimes we're the first people we're preaching to. And I feel that way as with Galatians, that much of what I get to share with you is things that God's working on me. I'm a, I'm a student underneath the authority of the Word of God along with each of you. Kenson preached a very powerful message a few weeks ago around adoption. Uh, and I don't know if you had a chance to hear that, but one of the things he said was that the doctrine of adoption is the crowning jewel the crowning glory of the Christian faith. All through the book of Galatians, Paul is making this argument. He's saying, look, justification, that's the term we use for how a person gets right with God. Justification was earned for you on the cross, but the story of God's people is not just that we've been made right with Christ, made right with God through Christ, but even greater, we've been adopted into his family. He calls us father. We are his children this is the crowning jewel of the Christian faith. It's this intimate relationship with God as Father. You know, I've got to be honest with you. When I think about the idea of God as Father, uh, I struggle. I don't know if that's any of your journey. The term Father for me comes with just baggage. I have an imperfect Father, as I am an imperfect Father to my three little girls. Every person that's ever stepped into this role of being father has varying degrees of brokenness in their understanding of father. And I, I, and I think I've realized as I've worked through this over the years that sometimes the way I approach God, my heavenly father, I sometimes allow baggage from the broken aspects of my relationship with my own dad to kind of infiltrate that relationship. Sometimes even I think I see my heavenly father in ways that I see my earthly dad. Some of the things that are barriers in our own relationship, I, I find barriers in my relationship with God. Is that any of your journey? When you think of God as Father, does that strike a chord deep down in you that is just powerful and good and it's meaningful or does it seem to sometimes have flavors of the baggage we bring in from our relationship with our own dads? You know, when I became a dad a few years ago, five years ago, my daughter Ruth was born, and I remember thinking, man, I'm going to be the best dad in the entire world. Every dad who's ever had a kid says that, but I was the one who was right. 
<laughs> I'm going to be the best dad in the whole world. And you know, I see all the imperfections coming out in my fatherhood as well. My kids have an imperfect dad. All the rules I said I'd set, all the times I said I'll be firm, all the ways I said I'd respond to them, all the patience I promised I would give them, all the grace I promised I would show them. I find myself getting impatient. I find myself not wanting to give the time I should. And, and sometimes I, I think of my own fatherhood, and, and sometimes that trickles into my relationship with God, the way I parent my own kids. When I adopted two little girls from the foster system, and I, when I think of them, for them, they never had the term dad. And, and as Kenson preached on this idea of adoption, it, it's, so, it's such a clear picture for me. These two little sweet, precious girls that I love who did not have the term dad in their vocabulary. Now I have a father, and I want so desperately to let them see a good dad. And yet I know that I'm an imperfect man. And yet I know that one day when they think of their own heavenly father, they may bring in, be bringing in baggage as well from their relationship with me. I want them to know that the Heavenly Father's love for them is perfect. When, when you think about God as Father, what do you bring into that terminology? When you think of your identity as a child of God, we sing those words. We talk about those words. They're so central to our vocabulary in the Christian faith. But when you really think about it, how it comes out in your relationship with God, the way you kind of transact with Him, is there baggage there? Twice in our passage today that we're studying, Paul has this statement in verses 28 and in verses 31, and really it's his big idea. Verse 28, he says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Verse 31, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but essentially children of the free woman. He's bringing us back to this identity we have as followers of Christ as children to a heavenly father. He's building off this doctrine he's already spoken of in Galatians that we've been adopted into God's family. And he's trying to secure in us what that fatherhood looks like. It's not like the brokennesses you and I will bring into our broken versions of being a dad. It's much greater than that. As a child of God, your heavenly Father's love is perfect. If we get that today, if you walk out of here and say, man, the only thing I remember is that one sentence, you got it. As a child of God, your heavenly Father's love is perfect. Now, I want to show you three ways and then give us one application very clearly of how we understand this from the text. Number one, your heavenly Father has established his relationship with you based on a covenant. Your heavenly Father has established a relationship with you based on a covenant. Let me read the whole first half of this passage to us. Chapter, verses 21 through 28. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Let me actually pause this right there. He says in verse 21, he says, tell me, you who want to be under the law. See, see, that phrase, under the law, it means something specific. Paul's writing this handwritten letter, which is what it originally was, to a group of people in a church just like this. It was a group of people that were a family, just as you guys pray together and do life together and pray for one another. That's the context he sent this letter into. And, and there was something happening in his church. There were a group of people that had snuck into the church and they were 
disseminating lies. The thing about the lies, though, is that they were very deceptive, and the church was starting to believe them. The lie sounded like this. Grace is good. Grace is great, but it's not enough. Sure, believe in Jesus and what he's done on the cross, but you still got to practice enough religion. You still got to do enough spiritual exercises. You still got to earn God's love. The people that were doing that over history have become known as Judaizers. They were essentially trying to make people more Jewish by following the Old Testament law. And Paul says, tell me, you who want to be under the Old Testament law, you people who are beginning to listen to these false teachers, have you read the Old Testament? That's verse 21. Don't you know that God's way has always been about his promises? It's never been about how we live up. He says, for it is written, verse 22, for it's written. Whenever you see that in the New Testament, we know that they're talking about the Old Testament and all the ways God has communicated to us in the Old Testament. Paul is a student of the Bible. And for Paul, whenever he's trying to navigate the issues in life, he always first and foremost goes to this book. This is the authority that holds all the keys. This is the judge by which we ascertain what teachers are telling the truth and which teachers are telling lies. He says, if you want to know if these teachers are telling the truth or not, look down at the book. You don't have to look any further. It will tell you all you need to know. And then he draws us to this story of Abraham. He says, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. We first meet Abraham way back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. We've actually talked about Abraham in this Galatians series already. He's a a man that Paul likes to bring up a lot because in Abraham, some of the very first promises were made. And, And they were made through him and they applied to you. And this is very important for us to understand this. See, God called Abraham out of a very broken situation. When we first meet Abraham, he's a mess. I mean, this guy's got all the problems that all of us bring into a relationship with God. Sometimes we look at the people in the Old Testament, we think they were these spiritual heroes. Abraham was as broken as it got. You know, one of the first stories, after God speaks to him, one of the first things Abraham does, he goes down to Egypt, and he, he, he asks his wife to pretend that she's his sister so that the leader of the country will not get mad at him for having such a beautiful wife. Now, now, that's a man who really has some priorities mixed up in his head. <laughs> that's a man who is not depending on the promises of God, not depending on the security from God, but it's a man who's really trying to take issues into his own hand. It's just, frankly, a strange story. But it's kind of par for the course when it comes to Abraham. He's a guy. He, he, he gets this stuff wrong, even on his good days. He's imperfect. And yet, God calls Abraham out and says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I've got a promise for you. And in, 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 in Genesis chapter 17, verse 19, we read this promise. It might come up on the screen here. It says, your wife, that's Sarah, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Now remember the first point I'm making. Your heavenly father has established a covenant with you. This covenant is literally traced back to Genesis chapter 17, verse 19, that's on the screen for you right there. God said to Abraham, I've got a promise for you, and it's a covenant. I'm going to bless your children. 
And what's amazing about this is that Abraham, or Paul has already said in the book of Galatians earlier on, he said if in Galatians 3.29, if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, then we are Abraham's offspring. Here's what that means. If you place your faith in Christ, that promise, written by God, spoken by God to Abraham, applies to you. All the promises of the Old Testament, you look back, people apply towards you. You are the fulfillment of that promise. You look back on this story and you see, this is my story. I'm living in the light of redemptive history. I'm seeing God play his divine drama out, and I'm part of it. He's made promises to me. Oftentimes what we do is we take this language here where God says, I will establish my covenant with you. And one of the first mistakes we make is we tend to think of God under contractual terms rather than covenantal terms. In a contract, two parties go into a relationship with each other, and, and whether or not that contract will be held up is dependent on how well both parties hold up to their side of the bargain. You have a contract with somebody, if you don't live up, if you have a bad day, if you screw up, contract falls apart. The contract's been voided. It no longer stands. See, in this covenant that God made with Abraham, he made it and then he affirmed it by himself. In other words, when he affirmed it by himself, God said, Abraham, you are going to screw up everything I tell you to do. But that doesn't matter. Because this is not a contract that can be broken based on how poor you perform. This is being held up by me. See, when we approach God under contractual terms, we bring an awful lot of insecurity into our faith with him. If I think that if I screw up enough, God might turn his back on me, and those promises might not apply to me anymore, and it won't be everlasting, that it could be temporal and I could lose it, Man, I'm pretty nervous when I approach God. I'm always wondering, have I done enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I studied enough? Have I shared the gospel enough? Have I done enough good deeds? Have I fasted enough? If I think of God under contractual terms, I'm always going to be insecure, wondering, what, is my, what does my heavenly Father really think of me today? Have I earned his love? can't approach God under contract. God, God has established a covenant with us. And it's not dependent on how well we do on any given day. This removes insecurity. Tell me, when you approach your heavenly father, when you think of God, my heavenly father, do you ever approach him with insecurity, wondering what he's thinking of you today? you ever approach him and, and you know, you have those thoughts in your mind, you're like, man, I'm, I just haven't prayed a lot recently. Man, I wonder if God's just disappointed with me. You know how I hear this a lot? When, when people find out I'm a pastor in the playground, when I'm with my kids at the park, you know, you end up talking and find out I'm a pastor. First thing they say is, oh man, I should really get back to church. I really should be at church. And they say it with this, this guilt. There, there's like, I, I can sense what they're saying. It's this nagging sense of, God's disappointed with me. They didn't get the covenant. If you've got an understanding of contract relationship with your heavenly father, you will feel guilt. You will feel insecurity. You will always be wondering if you've earned enough of your father's love based on how you've done religion on any given day. But if you know the covenant that he affirmed by himself, that is not your story. God's love for you as a heavenly father is covenantal, not contractual. Number two, your father's promises are not dependent on your deficiencies. Praise God, right? Your father's promises, hear this. Your father's promises are not dependent on your deficiencies. Paul says, Galatians chapter 4, verse 22, Abraham, that's Ephesians, go back. 
Abraham, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But just as the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise, now this might be interpreted allegorically. Now Paul is going to get real confusing. I'll try to clear this up, but let me read through it for us. This might be interpreted allegorically. These women are two children. I'm sorry, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is, hear this word, free. He uses the word slavery all through this passage, but then he says the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Now, Paul begins to dig into the story of Abraham, particularly how God brought about the promise to Abraham and how Abraham had two different sons. Now, one of the first things you've got to know about Abraham and the story of him is that the fact that God made this promise to him is pretty startling. Abraham was 75 years old and his wife was 65 when the promise was originally made. Now, just to be frank, that's typically past childbearing years. And so there was a sense of impossibility with this, that God was going to say, Abraham, you're going to have to trust me with this one. But not only that, Abraham and Sarah had never been able to have kids. They were barren. This is startling. God comes down and into what is impossible says, I'm going to give you a child. Now, I want to take a brief pastoral side and speak into this. I think it's very important for us to understand the narrative of Abraham. Kent and I can both tell you that there are many couples in our church family who go through what we call infertility, where you long for a child. Abraham and Sarah would have longed for a child. In fact, contextually in their day and age, there was even more identity that was loaded up on your ability to have children than in our day and age. But even in our day and age, any couple who's gone through infertility can tell you the pain that 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 carries. Infertility can strike at the very heart of a couple and can begin to define you as a couple. And, and I think that's really important for us to understand the promise that God made to Abraham. God comes down to Abraham when he's 75 years old and literally tugs on the string that was probably one of the biggest pains in his entire life. It wasn't just any promise and it wasn't just any man. It was Abraham and Sarah who had never been able to have kids. And he comes in and he says, I'm going to give you kids. I'm going to give you so many kids, you don't even know what to do with them. They're going to be more than the stars in the sky. When God made that promise to Abraham, he knew the depth of the pain Abraham was going through. And he said, in your brokenness, I'm going to bring light and love. I'm going to do more than you could ever dream to imagine. It's going to be supernatural, Abraham. For those in this room, and I suspect that there are many, because infertility in our modern day and age, we, we just, it's one of those hidden things. We don't talk about it. And in the church, we should talk about it. One of the only places we talk about it is around the pastor's table as me and Kenson have meals with you and go through this with you. You are in a support network here, people that love you and care for you. And one of the things we learn from Abraham and Sarah is that our brokennesses do not define us. Our inabilities do not define us. Whether or not we're able to have children does not define us. The story of the Bible is one long story of couples who struggled through infertility. Let me just name a few of them. You're in good company if you are in infertility right now. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel, Hannah and Elkanah, Elizabeth and Zechariah, just to name a few. And in each of those stories, God looked down on them in the pain they were in and said, your story's not done. 
more to give you. God's promise to you is not that you will be able to have children, but that in the midst of the hardest heartache we have, he speaks beauty and truth and gives you meaning, purpose, more than you would have asked for yourself. That's exactly what it does to Abraham in this moment. God makes him a promise. He speaks into that hard brokenness in his life. He says, I got more for you. I'm going to rewrite your story. And then Abraham makes a mistake. Abraham exhibits tremendous patience. 75 years old, God makes a promise, shows up in person. Then Abraham waits 10 years for God to do something about it. And God doesn't show up. 10 years of silence where Abraham's just waiting. Is this going to happen? I'm getting older here, Abraham. My wife's getting older. I, I don't... I don't know what to do. And then one day Abraham's wife, Sarah, comes to him and says, hey, honey, look, I, this is way past possible right now. Here, here's a plan. If you take my female slave, my female servant in that day, Hagar, if you marry her, enter into sin, my husband, Abraham, go into a polygamous relationship. Bad idea, right? Horrible, written all over this one. Sarah goes, you marry her, you have a kid, that'll be the promised child that God said. And Abraham says, sounds like a great idea. <laughs> to all of you who have made very foolish mistakes in the past, you are in good company when it comes to Abraham and Sarah. Sounds like a good idea. So he does it. He enters into a polygamous relationship. He has a child with Hagar named Ishmael, and they think all is good. And then God shows up two chapters later and comes down to him and says, whoa, bro. Because God sounds like Matthew McConaughey in my head. <laughs> and he says, I told you I was going to give you a son. To fulfill the promises, you didn't have to break my law. When I made a promise to you, it wasn't based on your inability or your incapability. It was based on my promise. And I don't expect you to go break my law, my desire for you, in order to go see my will done. All you got to do is stay in my lane, Abraham. That's it. That's your only responsibility. Stay in my lane. Do you know one of the greatest barometers of your spiritual relationship with the Lord is the patience you exhibit as you wait on God's promises to unfold in your life? Abraham waited 10 years. Sometimes we can't wait 10 minutes for God to make good on his promises. We can't wait it out at all. And Abraham didn't wait long enough. God would come back and 25 years later when Abraham was 100 and his wife Sarah was 90 years old, she gave birth to Isaac. The promised child. See, here's what you need to understand. Abraham royally screwed up, and yet God's promises remained as good as ever. He screwed up on every single sense of the word. He, he was impatient with God, and he stopped depending on God's promise. He, he was a coward, and he listened to his wife's sinful, tempting idea, and then he went through with it. He grew cynical of God. When God came back when he was 90 years old and said, no, that's not the son I was talking about. Ishmael's not the one. I'm going to give you another promise, son. Abraham laughed in God's face. Sometimes I think we laugh in God's face when we think about his promises he's told us. All the stuff that's still yet to happen in your life. And you live your life like wondering, <laughs> yeah, we'll see if God does that. That's exactly what Abraham did. He grew cynical of God's promises. And then he sinned by breaking one of all of us who ever entered into a polygamous relationship with a woman he should never have been in a relationship with. For all of us who have ever taken matters into our own hands rather than waiting on God, this is good news. For all of us who have ever been cynical towards God's promises, this is good news. God's ability to perform his promises is not dependent on what you bring to the table, but it's dependent on his promise that he made, period. 
Verses 24 to 26, it, it sounds a little confusing, but I'm going to put a table up for you to kind of show you what he's saying. He, he's trying to draw this comparison between the two ways to approach God. And he says it's, it's kind of like these two sons of Abraham. Abraham, on the one hand, had Hagar, who was a slave, and, and he did religion in his own way. He, he tried to bring about God's promises by uh, make your own religion. He, he goes, that type of religion, trying to be made right with God, that's what people have been trying to do all through history. That's when you take the law out of its context and you think that you can live by law and get God's approval. All that left side of the column over here, that's what he says in verses 24 to 26. These Judaizers, these people who are coming from current, present Jerusalem and sneaking into the Galatian church, they're teaching to make your own religion. Do it yourself, Christianity. You can earn God's love. And Paul says that's slavery. You'll be a slave to your insecurities, always wondering if you've done enough to earn God's faithfulness. The other way to approach God is through the line of the other child, through the promise. Imperfect as this whole scenario was, it's a picture for us of God's unfailing promise. He made a promise to Sarah. There was a promised child, Isaac, and that's like the heavenly Jerusalem. And notice how he says in verse 26, the Jerusalem above is free. It's free from the tyranny of wondering if you've done enough or wondering if you've broken enough of his commands. Now this is vitally important. It's not only true, but it's important. I'm reading a book recently called the, the Way of the Dragon and the Way of the Lamb. It's kind of a pastor's guide to navigating churches. And it and tells a story of a man named James and his wife Rita. James and Rita had a phenomenal marriage. They um, were blessed, just had tremendous just beauty in their life and stories to tell. He actually had been discipled by C.S. Lewis at one point, who was one of the great authors and thinkers of the 20th century. And and in their later years, this couple went to the hospital one day and found out that their wife, Rita, was going to be entering into severe Alzheimer's. She was beginning to lose her mind a little bit and her memory. And there was pain there. And this book provides a transcript, kind of, of this interview that James had with some folks who were writing this book, trying to understand his heart and what they were struggling with. And he says this, James says, you see... He started looking over at his bride, Rita. Rita is worried that as she loses her memory, she will forget Jesus. James glanced at us, but continued to talk to her. So I remind her what matters is not that you remember him, but that he remembers you. If you've got a vision of Christianity that is dependent on your ability to maintain a relationship with God, there will come a day when you are incapable. And then you got nothing left. Paul's point in this passage is that we are not dependent on our strength or our ability or our mind or the amount of time we put in, the amount of things we read, the intellect we have or the intellect we don't have. It's not dependent on that. It's simply dependent on God's promises. He made a promise to Sarah through Isaac and he delivered when it was impossible. It's not up to our inability or our deficiency. So many of us cling to God and, and, and we're clinging to him in a way that ultimately is leaning in on our ability. And we're setting ourselves up for disaster because there will come a day when we don't have the strength, when the world bears down on you. And if you're in a relationship with God under those terms, that will be a scary day. But if you take him on his terms and the promise that he made to you, 
There is nothing that can come your way that God is not the giver of good promises that he will maintain. This is the free Jerusalem that's from above. God's, our Father's promise are not dependent on our deficiencies. Number, number three, your Father's promises are not dependent on your circumstances. They're not dependent on your circumstances. It's really fascinating what Paul does next. He, he, he uses this verse from Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54. And in verse 27 of Galatians, he says, look, I'm going to quote this Old Testament. He says, for it is written. Notice how he goes back again to the Old Testament. For it's written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who have a husband. It seems like such a random verse. Sometimes when you read the verses Paul picks out, it feels like he's just like skimming through the Bible, picking one and being like, I'll use that one right now. What does this mean, Paul? Well, when Isaiah originally wrote that verse, he was speaking to a people who were experiencing incredible brokenness. Isaiah, he was writing to the people of God and saying, hey, look, you screwed up. You have broken just about every one of God's commands. You, you have separated yourself. You have caused division between you and God. You can barely hear God's voice anymore because you're so in sin. And when we talk about sin, what's important for us is that we realize that all the problems in society, I think people have a hard time understanding what sin is. All the problems that we see in society, when we point the fingers and blame other people, sin, the story of the Bible reminds us that all of that was rooted and caused first and foremost here. It all started here in my own heart. Someone else is not the problem the reason for the problems in the world. I'm the problem for the reasons of the world because I've chosen other things over God. I don't delight in God the way I should, the way I ought to. Rather, I oftentimes delight in everything other than God and I'm slow to go to him and that causes sin and brokenness in my life, in my family's life, in my circle's life, in my neighborhood's life and it goes on and on. Isaiah wrote to a people who were in a desperate situation, looking out at a society that was just going all topsy-turvy. There was war, there was famine, there was pain, there was death. And then in Isaiah 54, he says, rejoice. You in a broken circumstance. You in the midst of pain. There will come celebration and reason to, reason to party. There will come a day when there is rejoicing. And what's amazing about choosing Isaiah chapter 54 verse 1 is not just that that's an amazing promise that God has made to his people, but that Isaiah 54 verse 1 is built off of Isaiah chapter 53. You might have heard of Isaiah 53 before. See, there's one chapter in the entire Old Testament that highlights exactly how Isaiah 54 verse 1 could come to be, that highlights how God could look at all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all the things and junk we bring into society and contribute to a world that's going all topsy-turvy. God looks into all of it, and in Isaiah 53, in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Christ ever came, God wrote down his plan. Here's how I'm going to fix it. Here's how I'm going to fix it. Let me read to you from Isaiah 53. This is God's plan to make you be able to live in Isaiah 54, verse 1. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One man, God writes in Isaiah 53, would go and bear our burdens. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Hundreds of years before Christ was ever born, God laid out his plan. And the plan was not dependent on our abilities to make things right. It was not dependent on our abilities to go back to God. It was dependent on his servant to go and take care of the brokenness in our society and the brokenness in our heart. And he says the way it would happen is that his servant would go and he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would stand in our place where we belong upon a cross and he would die as a substitute for us who deserve death. For us who deserve to be separated from God, the Lord's servant, Jesus Christ, would come and die in our place so that you might receive the righteousness of sons. Apart from Jesus Christ dying on a cross, we cannot proclaim Isaiah 54 verse 1. There is no room to rejoice because all we bring is things that keep distancing us from God over and over. But when we look to the cross, we place our faith in Christ, that separation has been removed. And Christ now absorbs all of our wrath and then spreads out all of his righteousness to us. And God looks down on us with the same fatherly love that he looked down on Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are or how bad your circumstances are right now. They cannot change the fact that Christ has done away with that which has separated you from God. And the Father's love trumps all of your circumstances. In Isaiah 54 verse 1, Paul is saying that there is nothing left that can separate you from him. Christ has covered it all. That was the promise and guess what? God keeps his promises. He sent Christ and he did away with your sin. This means that no matter what your circumstances in this life are, you are a child of a perfect heavenly father and he can bring meaning and purpose and glory through it all. This means that no matter how bad it gets, no matter how bad the sickness, no matter how great the debt, no matter how awful the job, no matter how crumbling the marriage, no matter how atrocious the sin, no matter how devastating the abuse, no matter how wicked the comments you receive or that you give, no matter how many times you tried and failed, no matter how many ingrained addictions you have, no matter how, amount the, no matter how much the amount of depression you carry around with you, no matter what the weight of the world is on your shoulders on any given day, no matter how many times you failed, no matter how many times you forgot, no matter how many times you've laughed at God, no matter how much baggage you bring into a relationship with God as Father, his promise stands and is true. And in all your brokenness, he will find a way to give you life, meaning, purpose, and courage. His promises withstand. This is what was written in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor loss, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, your circumstances do not define your identity as a child of God. Rejoice, O barren one. By way of application, I just want to walk through these last few verses and, and help us understand what he's saying. He says, now you brothers like Isaac are children of the promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. He's referring to Isaac and Ishmael. He's saying there were two sons. And what ended up happening is Ishmael, the son of the flesh, used to persecute Isaac and laugh at him. 
And eventually what Sarah had to do was separate Ishmael out from them. Don't listen to that person who's persecuting you based on your promises. Don't ever let that sneak in. Paul says these false teachers who have come in, that's exactly what they're doing. They're trying to rob you of the promise that's yours. I've said this already, but it's important. When we try to apply this verse from God, from Paul, he says, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of these free women. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. He's saying, don't listen to the false teachers who are trying to rob you of the grace of the promises of God. In our day and age, you have any number of different voices competing for your ears. You, you got a thousand different voices teaching you about spirituality on YouTube, on podcasts, on books that are written, on books that are everywhere. You've got a hundred just different ideas of how God works and how we can draw near to him. Paul says, cast off the ones that are not telling you what has been written here. As a follower of Christ, it doesn't mean you need to fear people who have other perspectives. By any means, what it does mean, though, is don't let that inform how you relate to God. You have to judge every voice you hear based on the word of God, mine included, Kenson's included. Our voice is not the authority, the word of God, for it is written. This is the authority, and our voice is only sure and steady so long as we tell you what's written in this book. Paul says, cast out the voices from your mode of thinking that are tricking you into thinking you've got to earn God's love. You know, I, I want to go back to my kids just for a moment. Every night, I, I tuck them in. I've always been bedtime dad. And we have this ritual we do every night where I give them a bath, put their jammies on, get them in their bed. We'll read a story. We'll sing some songs. We'll say a prayer. And then, I don't know how this started, but now what I do, and actually I've been doing it for a long time, is I tell them a secret. All three of my kids want a secret. If I try to get out of that room without giving them a secret, Daddy, I need a secret. I need a secret. Here's what my secret usually sounds like. And I'm not not saying this to be mushy-gushy, but a little insight into Chenery household. I'll usually whisper in their ears, I'll say, you are beautiful, you are strong, and you are smart. And I'm so glad that God made me your daddy. I love you up to the moon and back a million times. And then usually my girls will say, Daddy, I love you up to the moon and back a thousand times. <laughs> They're working on their math. I think the idea is you go up. You go up from there. We'll get there. And then I'll whisper, and God loves you even more than I do. That's the passage. Your heavenly Father loves you even more. There is nothing that can remove his fatherhood from you. You bring nothing into it. That could ever earn you one cent more than your heavenly father loves you. You are a child of God. If you place your faith in Christ, rejoice and celebrate what's been earned on your behalf. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, you are so good. God, we don't even know a fraction of your love for us. Words can't describe what you've done for us. Words can't describe the love that sends his own son to adopt into his family those who are rebelling against him. And yet, it's the love you've given to us. God, help us to see you as you really are. Remove the baggage we bring into this and let us just rejoice. We pray in Jesus' name.